even though this is not an open championship, it is an open championship, you can be good enough at golf to even without any status on any tour anywhere in the world, you can be good enough at golf to play your way into this championship. Put another log on the fire. Nobody here is getting tired. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another fire drill podcast. I have a murderer's row of a uh, fire pit talent here on the line. Michael Bamberger, Ryan French, Laz Versailles. Gentlemen, thank you for, for being part of this. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. Alan. Yeah. Always you. honored to be with you, yeah. Alan. <laughs> That's a lie. So um, this is going to be a PJ Championship preview from a slightly different point of view. Uh, you know, for, for Ryan, we want to get um, any thoughts you might have on some of the some of the folks in the field who the golf fans don't know that much about. You know, there's plenty of talk about Scotty Scheffler and John Rahm and, and those homies. But are, are there some names in this field that, that jump out at you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I always take the angle of the of the people who will probably never be talked about, Alan, and, and probably never going to be in contention. Although, you know, all of them, I talked to a couple of guys that I'll talk about quickly, but, um, you know, all of them have, it's impossible to block out that, like, if they have the, the week of their lives, could they be in contention, right? But uh, talked to Casey Pine last night, super interesting dude. I mean, just very eccentric. Uh really cool uh called me at 11:30 last night and was like yeah i'm up of course i'm up i've been at the course all day this is great but an assistant pro in delaware and then in the winter like kind of goes and chases his dreams got to final stage of asian q school twice um didn't get a full card so because of a financial you know financially that doesn't work hanging out and waiting for asian tour starts came back and has done it but just a like one year went to uh, an event in Kansas City uh, his friend bailed on a place that he could stay and he had bought a 24-hour um, pass to a gym and and just went and slept in the gym until he got kicked out of there and and I was like is that bad and he's like this is great I love every part of it <laughs> he lived in his car for six weeks uh, read that Hogan uh, drank a bunch of caffeine before uh, events, so did that and had the shake so bad, he, you know, couldn't putt. He's just a really weird, eccentric, awesome dude. And uh, uh, I, he said, "Where do you get?" I asked him where he got it. He said, "I've been working on my putting." I said, "Where did you? Where do you? You know, who do you work with?" And he said, "I work with YouTube. I, I do a lot of YouTube clips on Tiger." And so, uh, super good dude. And then uh, Jared Jones, you know, I think a lot of people just don't realize how hard pro golf is i mean jared jones was like a very decorated amateur player as a junior went to ohio state for four years i mean was on the team and everybody knows that the history of ohio state i mean and didn't couldn't cut a you know couldn't crack an egg at the pro level um but has a very interesting he was he caddied for jack nicholas when jack did the redesign of the scarlet course at ohio state and uh they had an opening ceremonial round in, in Jared um, Caddy for him, but 36 years old, and this is his first his first PGA start, and you know he's just like I'm soaking up everything. Said yesterday he uh, he ran into uh, he was playing with some club pros in a practice round. They stopped after nine. He went on and uh, met Ricky and Jason Duffner on 
on 10 and played the back nine with them. And he's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a golf nerd. This is the coolest thing ever. So, uh, you know, this will be the, like the, the pinnacle of most of those guys' career. Uh, and it's, it's just super cool, you know. It's just that's kind of the side I obviously uh, focus on. And um, it's just a, a super cool part of golf that is not I, – I always say the same thing. It's like you don't get a chance to have a free throw contest to, to play for the Lakers for a week. And, and these are just like regular – regular Joes and now they're going to play in one of the four biggest tournaments in, in golf. It's just very cool. Yeah, I like that. For, for Michael and Laz, I mean, there's there's always debate about how, should they reduce the number of club pros or those guys taking the spots of more seasoned touring players, but this is the one week all year we really celebrate the guys in, in, in the pro shop, right, who are, are a huge part of, of, of the sport and they're the ones who cure your slice and they get you a deal on a new driver and like they're they're the lifeblood for a lot of people's golf experience, and I think it's kind of cool that that we give them this 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 stage. And you know, would, would twenty more uh, players from the bottom of the PGA Tour, you know, money list make a huge difference in this tournament? Probably not, but it gives a little a little heart and soul to this event. But what what is your guys' take on on where the the club pros fit in? Well, you know, I think it's to me it's always interesting to see there are so many different classes. I think there's twenty four different classifications of PGA professionals ranging from what we think of as being like the director of golf or head professional all the way down through club fitters, um, you know, uh, merchandisers, uh, teaching professionals, all of those different specialties within the profession can qualify um, for PGA membership. And it's not often you get like an actual shirt folding assistant in the event. A lot of these guys spend a lot more time, you know, teaching on the range, uh, helping us get better. So maybe not the traditional pro that we're thinking of, you know, answering the phone, kind of running the tournament. But, um, you know, this is, it's also like an homage to the profession, you know, to the actual PGA of America to say like, you know, this is the roots of the professional game in America. It's always been kind of a quirky major, uh, for me at least, but love to see it. Um, you know, Illinois coach Mike Small is kind of my favorite of the PGA pros that kind of pops in and, and makes a run at it. So I enjoy it as a, as a former club pro. For me, it's, it's fun to see some names pop up that I see again and again. Um, and some of them can really play. So, so it's it's a real treat to watch it. Yeah, I would agree with all that. And then to Ryan's point, when he's citing the names of these players, I'd never heard of either of those names, Ryan, that, that you just mentioned. But even though this is not an open championship, it is an open championship. You can be good enough at golf, to even without any status on any tour anywhere in the world, you can be good enough at golf to play your way into this championship uh, like those two guys uh, did. So that's really cool. And Ryan, to, uh, last year, point about uh, about Mike Small, and you'll all remember this name, but Jim Albus was a real club pro. He ran Piping Rock, and he ran a, a golf course at Staten Island before that, and he qualified, I don't know the number, for numerous PGA championships, and he turned 50, and he quit that. And then he was a stud on the senior tour. So he was loaded and loaded and loaded with game, just never had the opportunity to play the PGA Tour, but there are many different paths and the four of us would be examples of this too. There are many different paths to making this game part of your life. 
and this week does celebrate uh, those guys. And just one other quick note, and this kind of relates to what Phil's been talking about of late. This PGA Tour that we're so interested in and talk about all the time, it's a breakaway tour from the PGA of America. And that only happened in 1968. It's not like it's 100 years ago. Um, so the historic ties between the PGA Tour and the PGA of America, that's a very real thing. And for this one week to bring the two together is neat and appropriate. And and I'll, I'll quickly add, there was an, a great article, Alan, about uh, from Shane Ryan about uh, you know, club pros and, and it's, it's a dying profession. Uh, assistant pros make no money and uh, unreal hours and the, the growth of golf. And obviously we, it's kind of, I, I, I kind of compare it to Twitter. 90% of Twitter is great. 10% kind of make the 90%, uh, they're probably, probably level field. So the article really went into the, you know, that there's a lot of pain in the ass members and these, these guys are making 30 grand a year, 35 grand a year, and quitting like crazy they can't even fill the job so um i think it's an important week to to just that this profession is not very glamorous at all a lot of these guys are director of golf and director of instruction and living a pretty good life but they all most of them lived you know an assistant pro in some very obscure club uh that we've never heard of making 30 grand to get where they are so um, I think it's just an important, uh, it was an important article to talk about this side of golf. It's a, it's a dying part of golf. Well, I also, I, I don't know, you know, I think that it used to be that you would call the shop to make a tea time. And now, as the saying goes, there's an app for that. It used to be that if you had a snap hook that you needed cured, you'd go get a lesson at the club. Now there's an app for that. So... The profession itself is, 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 is going the way of the travel agent. You know, it used to be that people actually bought clubs from the professional who often owned the shop. But the second they could save 1995 on a $500 set of irons, they would do that. So, you know, people have not supported their shops and, and, and their local pros, um, in, in a way that, you know, maybe the profession needs because of competition from big box stores, because of technology. So um, this has been writing on the wall since I worked in the bag room in town and country in 1990, when the big, you know, people would show up with boxes and say, hey, you know, here's my, here's the clubs I just got down the street at Nevada Bob's. And they would hand them to the pro. Could you throw the box away for me and, and switch them out and maybe take my old clubs and, and give them to a, a caddy or something? And, and the pro who owns the shop with these same clubs in stock is going to have to eat the cost of those clubs because no one's going to buy them from him anymore. So um, this, this has been coming down the pipeline for a while. And... When most professions and most careers are threatened like that, they will make adjustments to survive and be, be more relevant. So what you saw was the PGA Tour starting to special, sorry, the PGA of America starting to specialize the profession. So, okay, Ryan French, look, you're not only going to be a PGA professional, you're going to be a PGA professional with, a, with an emphasis on food and beverage or with an emphasis on general management. So now we're going to put more duties on your shoulders, hence 
more time at the job, more um, more touch places in in the clubhouse, whether you know it's it's the food or the operations of the ground screw now falls on you. So um, it's been coming for a while, and and it's it's sad to see that the reaction that the PGA had. Um, which was to develop this professional golf management program. So now I, as a graduating senior in high school, can go to Ferris State or Clemson and do a four-year PGA program. And here I come out at age 22, and I, they expect me to be a Class A PGA member who can handle the rigors of, of a job that's not that easy, and certainly not that easy for a 22-year-old kid who very likely, you know, is in it because he loves golf, not necessarily because he loves managing people or he understands operational uh, excellence. So you kind of make your yeah. own bed in this world, right? Yeah. You know, it's just, when I think about the all the, the Class A pros out there, my three summers as a cart boy at Pebble Beach, I saw this play out a few times. You, you had to pass the player ability tests and I can't remember the numbers. I think you had to shoot like 75, 75 and, or something around there. And the stress on these guys, they've done all the classroom work. They've got all the qualifications and they have to go out and pass this test. And it's very unforgiving. You know, it's just it's just a number you got to shoot and there's no wiggle room. And these were good players. But, uh, you know, guys would wash out and they'd have to wait however many months to try again. And it was like <laughs> it was it was this it was almost kind of cruel because if you can shoot 77, 77, you're still a good player and you can still be a, a good head pro somewhere, but no, you got to get, you got to hit the number or it doesn't count. And like, to me, that was like really high stakes golf. And I was sort of fascinated. You know, I was just, as a teenager, I didn't really understand how it all worked, but just the, the, this is like a life changing thing to go out and shoot these numbers. And that's, that's always stuck with me. It's so interesting what, uh, what, what Les is, was saying there, because of course there's the economics of the whole business that Laz is addressing. And then there's also, as he's as he was talking about, I'm thinking about the texture of the game has changed a lot because you really, there are fewer humor interactions with club pros uh, because you're doing so much online. And uh, and we say that in every walk of life. I mean, even, you know, when you're on the turnpike and you go to pay your toll, well, you don't talk to a human being at all, of course, you just go right through the easy pass. Uh, and that has actually affected the, uh, uh, the texture of the game or like when Ryan's talking about this uh, the, the I think the assistant pro from Delaware uh, who's getting his puss and le putting lesson not from his buddy but from YouTube um, and that's none of this is helping the game or society this lack of uh, the, this lack of humor in action so it's um, I never thought about last what you just said until until just now but uh, you know part of the texture of club life especially at a fancy club or even at a muni was guys hanging out and talking. I don't mean guys, anybody, you know, kids and whomever. Uh, and there's less of that now. And I don't think society is better for it. Yeah, that's that's well said. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. You, you know, um, Michael and I did a podcast with Jeff Ogilvie, and we really got into Southern Hills as a golf course and as, a, as an incredible test and all those things. But uh, for... for I wanted to talk a little more big picture here. You know, Michael and I have discussed many times, like the, one of the pleasures of this job is that it takes us to places we probably wouldn't get to otherwise. And you, you get to explore a place like Tulsa. Um, for, for Ryan as a Midwestern, I, I want you to speak to what it means to have a, you know, one of these big, huge tournaments come to, uh, 
you know, not a booming metropolis. And, and then Laz, as I know you've been tracking this for a while, but you know, Tulsa has its own unique history. And, um, if we, we can get into some of that as well as the, the complexion of the city and, and some of the, some of the darker shadows that, that, that are around Tulsa through the years and, and how maybe this, uh, golf plays a role in all that. But what to start with Ryan, like what, what does it mean to Tulsa when a PGA championship blows into town? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, I caught I, you and I talked on the phone yesterday and you flew into Oklahoma city. Like how many majors have you had to fly into a different city and then drive to like, it just, it doesn't happen very often. And so, it's the only show in town. I mean, Bunky Perkins is a great follow. And I mean, like he was listing places that you would go and hidden gems in Tulsa and those kind of things. It's just, it's pretty, uh, I mean, Tulsa is a big city, but it, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of majors, it's not very big. And, um, it's just cool to see a place where it's the only show in town and it's just, it's pretty rare. So, um, obviously Michael's article about how we got here and all those kind of things is, is is a great of how we got here, but just Tulsa on its own is it's cool to see a, a Midwestern, you know, blue collarish type city have the only show in town. The, the LPGA did that for years. Uh, uh, it went to places that, you know, didn't have NBA teams and major league baseball teams. And, uh, and it worked. Uh, it, it was the only show in town and it's neat when, you know, professional go- men's majors golf doesn't do it very often. Although, in a sense, Augusta does it every year. I mean, would we ever go to Augusta, Georgia, were it not for the fact that it has the Masters? Uh, no. Um, and uh, Or, you know, Manchester uh, for Ryder Cups? No. So uh, it is neat how uh, golf can be the only show in town and bring the whole world um, into that town for a week. Yeah, Tulsa, you know, has a unique... Um, it's curious to me that it's it's this is a tough thing to talk about um because i was sitting working on a piece about a man named bill spiller so bill spiller is largely viewed as the the primary uh man who 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 broke down the the caucasian only clause he was the person that went toe to toe with the as Michael uh, mentioned earlier, in 1961, you know, the PGA Tour and the PGA were, were together. They were one. They were one entity, um, and they had a Caucasian-only clause. And Bill Spiller was the man that challenged it. Um, he he was the one that kind of kicked down that door so that so that people of color could play on the on the PGA Tour. Um, he's from Tulsa, and from Tulsa, I mean, you know, he moved there uh, when he was eight years old. And this is in 1921, just after, just after the Tulsa race riot massacre. So for those that are unfamiliar, um, in 1921, um, May 31st to June 1st, the you know, black people were, were, were killed in large numbers. Um, people flew planes and dropped bombs on them and destroyed the primary black neighborhood in Tulsa. And it's 
things like that on the shoulders of years of Jim Crow, on the shoulders of failed Reconstruction, uh, still dealing with the residue of slavery. And it's things like this that, that make people want to leave the South and go to places like Chicago and New York and St. Louis. And in Bill Spiller's case, he goes to Los Angeles. Um, we were lucky enough to get into the California African American Museum where they have a, uh, they had a collection and it was called the African American Move West. And it kind of brings forth many of these artifacts that people had as they, as they left the South. So we had Bill Spiller's footlocker and his golf bag and his son. And we, we were we were sitting and I, w I was taking notes to, to talk to him about, you know, were these were there any stories? Did anyone share things with you when you were a kid about what it was like? And he said, you know how it is, you know, we, that generation didn't share those stories. And I thought, oh, you know, what a tragedy, because here now in Buffalo, we've got another race massacre in a grocery store where someone goes in with a gun and kills 10 black people. So it was really heavy to deal with looking at that piece of history and, and, and seeing it kind of repeat itself uh, again in Buffalo, New York, sadly. But I asked him, you know, we talked about um, how his father was in the posthumously uh, granted membership to the PJ of America, was uh, inducted into the Oklahoma Golf Hall of Fame in 2015. He didn't really, he never played golf when he was in Oklahoma, ever. He started playing golf when he got to Los Angeles uh, at age 29. So it's, we, you know, it was just kind of a heavy thing to talk about. Uh, and, and yeah, but it's, it's important. It's important to bring this up. Yeah. It's, it's important to know that, yeah. you know, that these things happened. Well, I'll be, I'll be curious if, uh, if there's any acknowledgement on the telecast, because, you know, it, it's a, it's a failure of, of, you know, various school systems that I never heard about the, the, the Tulsa race massacres in, in school It's only in the last 15, 20 years that it even became aware of that such thing had happened. And, uh, it seems like, you know, we just, we had just had the hundredth anniversary last year and it was something that was talked about in a lot of different places. And, uh, it's, it's almost like taking a full century for, for, uh, you know, a public awakening and, and reckoning and, uh, not to say that it, it's, a, that this, this championship tournament has, uh, has anything to do with, you know, telling that story in a broad way. But when, when you come to a place like Tulsa, uh, in your, you're bringing this tournament here and you're trying to tell, tell the whole complete story of, of the venue and, and the city that shaped it, it, it does seem germane. So, uh, it's, it's, you know, golf, the, the Bill Spiller connection is really interesting because golf has always been slow to acknowledge its, its problems and that the Caucasian only clause lasted into the 1960s is certainly something that, that, uh, the PGF America has, has always had to, to reconcile with. And, uh, so anyway, I'm, I can't wait to hear that podcast. And when, when you really bring that story to life, Laz, because I, I do think it's important when, when you, when you visit these, these cities that have these histories that, that, that it needs to be told. Yeah. And I'll add quickly that, um, 
Wyatt Worthington II is uh, a club pro from Ohio who qualified African-American, only the second uh, African-American um, to make it to the PJ through the, the PJ uh, Pro Championship qualification process. That's awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. And, and, and Alan, to your point, you know, will the CBS telecast or even, or even Golf Channel, you know, these major, major venues where literally millions of people get introduced to what this tournament is about this week, will there be any mention of something like Bill Spill or the Tulsa Race Rights? You know, we know historically the answer is close, the chance of that are close to zero. And it's such a shame for golf that it takes this attitude because if you look at the greatness of the NBA or the greatness of Major League Baseball, the story of cities and race relations and economic struggles, that is part of the fabric of what makes the NBA and the NFL and even boxing to a lesser degree the NFL, the great stories that they are. And I don't know why golf always tries to promote itself as it lives in this isolated chamber of fairness when of course it doesn't and the game would be a richer experience for more people if we could just talk about it truthfully like we're trying to do here so uh, you know i hope that they do i think that they won't i think golf would be better if 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 we would do more of this yeah this is this was something that we touched on with ogilvy but when you go to southern hills it's like going back in time i mean there's there's a there's it's a very stately place and it's been that way for a really long time. And so, um, you know, it, its role in, in this city, it, it's, it's been a hub uh, for the ruling class of Tulsa for a very long time. And so uh, it, it seems like it would be an appropriate conversation to have, even though it makes some people uncomfortable. But uh, that, that's that's just part of it. I mean, you've, you've we have to acknowledge, you know, our history as in the game and, and beyond that. But uh, yeah, I think they will touch on it at some point. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll give kudos to CBS for having uh, our friend and, and past uh, guest on the Grassroots podcast, but Roger Steele will be um, on site doing clubhouse interviews and being on the driving range uh, with people as well. So Roger, for those who don't know, is one of the kind of leading voices in black golf today um, and from Chicago and just really a wonderful mind. So I'm glad he'll be featured throughout. Um, and yeah, it's amazing that Wyatt Worthington, this is his second time qualifying before him. He had to go back to 1991. Um, and that speaks to the structure of the PGA of America and where there are not many black PGA of America professionals. I mean, one of you guys might have the statistics. I know that, um, you know, yesterday, Bill Spiller Jr. quoted the number, something like, you know, 60, there's only 68 members. I, th I think there are a couple hundred African-American members of the PJ of America. But, um, you know, the structure of being granted that PGA classification is is a little dated. You know, to your point, Alan, you do have to pass the player ability test which, you know, you, you might have to take it a couple of times, but um, I feel like the PGA could certainly go out to some of these courses that serve communities of color, and they will see that there are people that are largely operating in a, in a, in a professional capacity, and they are people that could be given some kind of a fast track to PGA membership to, to kind of get those numbers up, to kind of look at a way to say like, 
actually, there are people doing the work that's important to our game. How do we meet them and say, okay, yes, you, you know, Karen Peak is a great example. Karen Peak is a, is a woman who runs all of Detroit public golf. She graduated from the University of Michigan with a degree in history. She's she, fine player. She knows all about the history of golf in Detroit. She literally runs operations for three different golf courses. She's already an LPGA member, so there is a fast track to go from LPGA membership to PGA membership. That model of saying like, yes, if you have experience in this already, don't worry too much about these three levels of, of, of training that we're gonna put you through. Some of them are very archaic, by the way. Um, don't worry about flying to Florida three different times. Don't worry about buying mountains of books that you're never going to use once you get past this program. Let's just look at your experience and what you do and somehow find a way to say, all right, give us your body of work, we'll review it, and we'll get back to you with what we'd like to see for you to become a PGA member. Um, because there are thousands, thousands of people who are, you know, you got Steve at the range at Rancho. He's given more lessons than every kid in the PGM program, which Wyatt Worthington, by the way, is an alumnus of, of uh, Methodist where he was in the PGM program. But there are people all over our country, black people working in golf, passionately dedicated, who, who could easily, easily run clubs and, and teaching programs that, that I think it would behoove the PGA of America to find a way to bring those people in, maybe in an unorthodox manner, but it um, seems like a no-brainer to me to, to reach out and find a way to, to get those people under the umbrella, so to speak. Yeah, I love um, that. Can I could just jump, jump in here with one quick question because I want to correct myself if it's necessary. Laz, you may know this. I certainly don't. Does CBS have something in the works um, to really talk about race relations and the history of race well, in Tulsa? Because I, I, I didn't know about it. And if that's the case, I definitely want to correct myself. About six months ago, somebody asked me if, if, if I had any ideas for, for them um, at CBS. And so... I would expect they have something. I mean, my response was, "Well, I hope I'm wrong." Let's, yeah, let's hope. Let's hope so. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, and I, I think last. Well, I know I heard that a PGA official told me. I I think there are twenty nine thousand members of the PGA of America. This it's almost hard to say the number because it seems a little fewer than two hundred are 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 black or or people of color. Yeah, think about that. That's amazing. Yeah, that really is. Um, all right. Well, this this is uh, this has become a a non golf conversation in, in in a positive way. But let's let's bring it back to a little bit. What's going to happen between the ropes? I just before I let you guys go, I want to just get your thoughts. Like, what are you most excited about uh, for this PGA Championship? Answer that any way you wish. The golf course, uh, watching. You know, watching golf on television has gotten so much better over the last few years with, 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 with the different cameras. And the Venice cam now provides like this really rich depth uh, into the scene. I am a big fan of Gil Hance and his work. And I've always been a fan of, of Southern Hills. So I'm excited to see how that 
um, kind of the existing land and Gill's artistry come together, I think Rory McIlroy is going to get back in the winner's circle. I, you know, we'll see, obviously, but uh, there's not a course that's too big for him. And, and it sure seems like he's, you know, he's kind of trending in the right direction. So the, the two things I'm most excited for are Rory and the golf course. Uh, I'm most excited for the Corn Ferry event. As you guys know, uh, <laughs> this majors and top players in the world and the, rich, the richest players getting richer is not much of an interest to me. Uh, I, I love the fact that there's some club pros. If an obscure pro gets in contention or Tiger gets in contention, obviously I'll watch. But for the most part, my focus is on the obscure parts of golf. So I'll be really locked in on the Corn well, Ferry. So, so what, what, what Corn Ferry event are we talking about? Give us, Set the table, Ryan. You've got our attention now. Yeah, it's the Advent Health, uh, and it's quite, uh, it's so obscure. A lot of guys uh, uh, skip it, so it's way down the list of, of uh, the priority list. We're deep in the, in the Corn Ferry list, so, um, you know, it's going to rain. It's often, last year they had to tee off of uh, a temporary green. It was underwater. It's, it's a semi-miserable uh, time. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Mark, Mark did, did called it, uh, you know, he said he wouldn't go there if there was a $50,000 appearance fee. Uh, so um, not a lot of people go. So it often uh, creates obscure winners and, you know, can kind of change their life. So uh, what's the venue? That's it. I have no idea. Some <laughs> some some course in Kansas City that's semi mediocre. <laughs> I love it. How about you, Michael? But Ryan, Alan and I were with Mac Barnhart the other day. Alan, help me out here if I have it wrong. He was talking about a tour called the G4 Tour. Am I saying that correctly? G Pro, G Pro, G Pro Tour. Uh, yeah. What's that tour all? Yeah. How, what's the quality of that tour like? Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, in the mini tour world, and this can be its own pod, but the PJ Tours kind of ruined mini tour golf, Michael. When they created the Canadian Tour, China, that's now gone, and, and Latino America, all the guys go there. So they kind of ruined guys have the ability to make a living uh at the developmental tour level um you know there used to be the hooters tour and e-golf tour and guys would make you know 150 dollars if they were leading the money list uh so the, those are gone the g pro tour offers 10 to twenty thousand dollars to the winner uh depending on on the field and in these this day and age almost unheard of michael so good reputable the guys uh owned it for a long time and as we have learned as we've read about Big Money Classic and other tours. He pays people, and that's the most important thing. <laughs> guys neat. just want to get a check. I love uh, that. Alan, the thing to, to follow up on uh, what Laz was saying, I too, I'm, I'm drawn to the golf course and to watch the golfing intelligence of the world's best players uh, rise to the challenge of playing a golf course as difficult as Southern Hills, and then to go even a little deeper into that uh, that nook especially pitch shots and greenside shots and bunker shots and short putting and lag putting on tricky greens uh, because they're all so good um, uh, tee to green now. Uh, but that is the great equalizer. It is the greatness of a golf course like Southern Hills, like Augusta National is pitching it and chipping it and lag putting it and short putting it 
and not just doing it on Thursday, but right through Sunday night. Uh, so that uh, And you don't get that week in and week out on the PGA Tour when the conditions are softer and the grass is a little longer, and it's not as also fine. But this won't be like that. And part of that, and you really can't say enough about him, is how Kerry Haig sets up a golf course for PGA Championships. Um, I think he's really almost unheralded. Uh, we just hear about, like, Mike Davis had a lot of skill at that. But Kerry Haig does a great job of setting up golf courses, and uh, I'm sure we'll have a just a, a first-rate uh, challenge. Um, but we'll let the cream rise to the crop and to watch really closely what they do as the ball. Th- this is true of every great golf course. As that ball gets closer and closer to the hole, the golf course actually becomes more and more difficult. Yeah, and, and more interesting. And it is going to be a different kind of setup with uh, a, a lot more uh, – for areas for the ball to run to these collection areas and these shaved banks and uh it, it it's going to be a fascinating week around the greens and i was out there yesterday about seven o'clock when they'll, they'll be finishing on sunday and it was beautiful twilight and and there's just an elegance to this golf course and at the way it sits in the land and, and the the flowing terrain it just looked absolutely beautiful and because of the craziness on the same second hole that's what people remember about the 2001 u.s open 2007 PGA was the hottest tournament any of us have ever covered, and that's what people remember. Hopefully, this is uh, the date change and and the redesign. Like this is the this is the tournament where Southern Hills really becomes a superstar in, in people's minds as a venue. So, I'm excited about that. And also, we're, we're in this this moment of great parity where there's not a dominant player. There's a lot of guys who are. Uh, they're nibbling around the edges of that, but no one has really asserted themselves. And, you know, if Scheffler to win this, if Rom, if Colin Morikawa, if Rory were to, were to come through again, like, uh, I think, I think it's always helps drive interest in, in the game when, when one player is, is really taking the sport by the throat and for sure Scheffler's on a nice heater, but, um, this would take him to a whole different level. So, uh, I'll be curious if, if someone can, can start trending in that direction. Um, well, Shuffler is the course record holder here. I know that's that's a great little nugget. Just just like Rory was at Royal Portrush, it didn't it work out is, for him there. But yeah. uh, <laughs> last, I'm curious if you ever heard heard this thing. It, it, this is so old timey. I, I don't I don't even know if you'll you'll have ever heard of it. Have you ever heard of a guy? The club pro has the course record, and now some guy shows up, a tour player, and he's he's just going low. And, like, he can go par, par for 64, and then thereby Trump, the club pro, is now having the new course record, and he goes bogey or he doesn't hole out or does something to make sure that the club pro keeps the course record. Uh, have you ever heard of that being a tradition? Uh, yes, yeah. So I had the great, great privilege of working for a couple of really old-school pros, guys that you know, a guy named John Miller, who, who used to say, like, you know, I could run this place with a notebook and a shoebox. Get this computer out of here, right? We don't need fax machines. We'll be all right. And another man named Terry Hogan. And so we would hear stories of, you know, like Terry Hogan would call uh, Cherry Hills Country Club, right, and say, like, hey, I'm coming through to play. And they would be like, no, Hogan is coming, right? And everybody would kind of go crazy thinking it was Ben Hogan, but it would be Terry Hogan. But... Yeah, you never want, you know, because, again, this was in, in a different time, right? This had to be a pride point. And, and one thing you'll learn about if you do get in the, in the club business is if there's 500 members at your club, you have 500 bosses. So whatever 
leg you have to stand on is is helpful and 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 being a good player is important at a lot of clubs so you don't want to take any shine off someone who's who's in your union so to speak um and you know this is the professionals championship this is the association's championship it it's it's a rich one it's also given us some really unique champions through the years like sean McKeel, as you remember alan and rich beam and so we get we get some kind of unsuspecting uh champions in this in this tournament and i you know i kind of appreciate that about it but um you know for me i love i love those old school pro stories michael because a lot of those guys you know i think bob ford was one of the last to really go from one great club in the north for six months and then you know take a couple weeks and pack the station wagon and drive to florida and then you're a pro at a great club down there for a couple months so it's a rich tradition filled with a lot of great stories i love that well i I think that's a good that's a good ending spot you know that's really what this this tournament is a link to the past and uh a different sort of different more uh genteel age and um you know we all we all know Bob Ford. He was at Oakmont. And he was at Seminole. And he's just one of the real. It's a connective tissue between so many different people and so many different stories. And this, this was his week to shine. And like it was, it was fun to see him in this element. And uh, hopefully we'll get a little, another Cinderella story from amongst the the club pro ranks. Hopefully we'll get one of the game's best players. We'll we'll do his thing on this amazing golf course. So, um, boys, thanks for for being part of this. Anyone have any parting thoughts before we? Uh, we tip our cap to our corporate sponsors. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. Look forward to a great week from you guys. All right. And big shout out to uh, Parpoints, who's uh, been a great supporter of Fire Pit Collective from the very beginning. As I've said elsewhere, M- Michael's tired of hearing this already, but it is quite a, uh, a clever little scoring app that I would encourage all you diehard golf fans to give a shot because it, it adds a different layer to, to what you're doing out there. And uh, it's quite a lot of fun and they support quality journalism and quality podcasting and we're thankful for them. So uh, for Michael Bamberger, Lazar Sias, Ryan French, I'm Alan Shipnuck. This has been a fire drill podcast. We'll be doing them all week long from uh, the PGA championship. So thanks for listening. Nobody here is getting tired